You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. The influence of the later Wittgenstein can be seen in two different developments in philosophy in the last few decades. One is um, an early development by the philosopher J.L. Austin. Austin drew attention to the ordinary uses of language and thought you could make some progress actually in philosophical problems by attending carefully to ordinary language. And in this, he had not just a therapeutic model of philosophy, but a more substantive model for what philosophers could accomplish. After this, in the next lesson, we'll turn to the anti-realist strain of the later Wittgenstein that I said reappears in uh, especially contemporary philosophy of Dummett and Rorty and some other students. J.L. Austin, on the other hand, thought that, it, that you could mine ordinary language for important insights about things that ultimately you would probably be able to use in this constructive realist project helping to resolve some long-standing problems in philosophy, that you would make better progress on those if you would first pay attention to the ways in which we use words, the ways in which we talk about the things. Two aspects of this, I think. First one was that Austin drew attention, maybe he discovered, you might say, the notion of speech acts, the ways we use language to do something, to do something, not just to make truth claims or to make assertions. In some sentences, we're doing something else. Maybe we're making a promise. Maybe we're complaining. Maybe we're giving an order to somebody. We're issuing a warning. We're offering advice. Maybe we're christening a ship. There are many uses of our language. And in each of these uses, we're not just saying something. We're performing an action. So Austin would call these performative utterances, statements that don't just say something. They, they do something. In fact, he, he wrote a book called How to Do Things with Words, and that was the idea of the book in part, that we're always doing something. Maybe we're just making an assertion or trying to make a truth claim, but other times we're doing something else, another kind of an action. And by careful attention to what we're doing in ordinary language, we can make some progress perhaps on even some of the traditional problems in philosophy, especially those related to the theory of actions. Austin was also suggesting that in a way that philosophers take a more modest view of the project of philosophy, at least for a time. Rather than attempting to develop this kind of huge overall synthesis of everything, God and reality and the world and so forth, instead philosophers should focus on smaller pieces. They should make careful studies of the ways in which individual terms function in our language and he thought maybe this by itself would clear up a lot of confusions and maybe even dissolve some long-standing philosophical problems. Uh, not by showing that they can't be solved or something like that, but in fact by showing us what the truth of the matter is. So we work on aspects of our language piece by piece, as it were. We kind of slow down, focus in on a narrower aspect of language and try to get very clear about that before we move on. And again, the idea would be that this is going to be more on the model of how scientists work. They each work on different small things, small projects, then they combine their results, and maybe eventually they can go on to the constructive, the theory building project. So by studying the words, 
for instance, uh, just to take an example that Austin, um, that was one of his most important and influential contributions to philosophy, he liked to focus on the words we use to describe our actions. What's the difference between acting and having something just happen to you? Then we could get much clearer about notions like free will, freedom, moral responsibility, and so forth. Especially responsibility. When are we responsible for what we've done? Is to sneeze to do an action? What about breathing? Is that an action or not? Is seeing an action? Perceiving something? If you checkmate somebody, is that an action? You sort of look at a lot of other action words and try to decide you know, so project isn't really exactly yet, anyway, which ones are actions. It's rather, which ones would we say, would be inclined to say, yeah, that's an action, whereas this is just something that happens to you. Sneezing, of course, we're going to be inclined to say, well, that person doesn't have any control over that. You know, don't, um, there's a poem I remember, I forget who the author was, but about disciplining children, and the idea was to be stern with your little boy, beat him when he sneezes. And that seemed a little harsh because we think, well, the kid can't help it. So Austin would say, well, let's just attend to things like that, things that we already assume and presuppose because of the way we talk about things. Um, as he puts it, words are our tools here, our tools in philosophy. And as a minimum, we should use clean tools. We should know what we mean and what we do not. We must forearm ourselves against the traps that language sets us. Our common stock of words embodies all the distinctions men have found worth drawing and the connections they have found worth making in the lifetime of many generations. These surely are more likely to be numerous, more sound, since they have stood up to the long test of the survival of the fittest, and more subtle, at least in all ordinary and reasonably practical matters, than any that you or I are likely to think up in our armchairs on an afternoon, the most favored alternative method. This was an essay called A Plea for Excuses, another one of uh, Austin's very influential essays, where he's arguing that the words are going to be our tools. They could be helpful in solving philosophical problems because they reflect, not just individual words, right, but the ways we talk about things reflects distinctions that people have come up with, human beings have come up with in millennia of dealing with, of trying to decide when people are responsible for what they've done and so forth. This, it's not like we're the first ones to ever try to decide when is somebody responsible for their actions. So if we look at the way the language has evolved, then kind of on an evolutionary theory, the best distinctions, the best ways of demarcating things and so forth will be the ones that have survived. So careful attention to the ways we talk could be illuminating about the things themselves. Now, Austin was not too enthusiastic about the label ordinary language philosophy because he thought it made it sound as though philosophers of this variety or philosophers that use the method only care about language. They don't want to talk about anything else except language itself. The contemporary philosopher, French philosopher Jacques Derrida, often characterizes American philosophy as an excessive use of quotation marks because they're always analyzing sentences and so forth, as that was the beginning and end of it. And so the term ordinary language philosophy was sometimes applied to either later Wittgenstein or to somebody like Austin, his student John Searle, in a kind of pejorative way. That, you know, these, these, this is a kind of trivial thing to look at ordinary language. I mean, at least it was respectable to try to give an account of science, but ordinary language, that we're going to get some philosophers now, we're going to learn something from an everyday person in the street, you know, give me a break. So there was a kind of contempt for it. Austin suggested that a better name for it would be linguistic phenomenology. 
careful attention to the way our language is used in different situations, taking the lesson from Wittgenstein, you got to look at this context and the situation and so forth, pay close attention to what we would say and what we wouldn't say, who we would blame, who we wouldn't blame, and so forth. So that's the method. Now, it can then have in this background, this approach can have a kind of realism as its ultimate goal. That is not just to describe words, but to describe what's out there. I mean, Austin was very sensitive to the charge that this is going to be a trivial pursuit and it doesn't have any implication for these deeper problems of philosophy. His response is this, when we examine what we should say when, what words we should use in what situations, we are looking again not merely at words or meanings, whatever they may be, but also at the realities we use the words to talk about. We are using a sharpened awareness of words to sharpen our perception of, though not as the final arbiter of, the phenomena. Now that's realism coming through. In other words, he thinks by sharpening our understanding of the terms, we will sharpen our understanding of the things themselves. And he says the words are not going to be the arbiter, the final arbiter of the things. In other words, the anti-realist move. We're not going to just say, well, all we can do is analyze the words, and, and whatever the words say there are, that's what there are. We can't get outside of that. No, Austin himself, anyway, wants to ultimately move on, as it were. So he thinks of this linguistic analysis, as he understands it, to be a beginning, right? An attempt to at least be clear about when we ascribe responsibility to a person and so forth, to be clear about what we're doing, uh, when we're excusing them, why we're excusing them, if we're only excusing them in part, so we let them off a little bit or we lighten the sentence or whatever it is. And Austin said the tools that we would use in this search to understand ordinary conceptions of moral responsibility would be dictionary, first of all, how different words are commonly defined and used, uh, the law, when does the law hold somebody responsible? We're all familiar with the different levels of responsibility in the distinction between first-degree murder, second-degree murder, you know, involuntary homicide, and so forth, all suggesting that the law itself is reflecting their common understanding that some people are much more responsible for what they did than other people are. And he says we can also bring in some insights from psychology, of all things. I mean, in a way, you might say this is one of the reasons why this method was held in so much contempt by some philosophers who thought of the social sciences, especially psychology, as hopelessly muddled and riddled with confusion, obscurity, weird kinds of... I mean, psychology, remember, this is in the 50s, is still heavily influenced by Freud and psychoanalysis and so forth, so it was a pretty murky business in the view of many philosophers. But Austin says, with these sources and with the aid of the imagination, it will go hard if we cannot arrive at the meanings of large numbers of expressions and at the understanding and classification of large numbers of actions. Clarity, too, I know, has been said to be not enough. But perhaps it will be time to go into that when we are within measurable distance of achieving clarity on some matter. Clarity isn't the end of the inquiry, but it is the beginning. It's not a bad place to start. And Austin's feeling is that many philosophers have not been particularly clear about what they're saying and what are or ordinary understanding of something is, and then just rushed on to constructing these theories without careful attention first to what the data, you might say, are. What is the data of common sense here? In his work called Sense and Sensibilia, Austin criticized the standard arguments in favor of sense data, for instance. He didn't think that they were persuasive. On the other hand, he doesn't go on to defend 
a more a strong view, you might say, a realistic view that what we see in perception are the material objects themselves. That we don't just see giraffian sense data, we see giraffes. He doesn't do that. So on most questions, just as in this case, he saw himself as making a beginning, I think, offering a first word, not the last word, on the question. But he did want to encourage philosophers to be a lot more careful, a lot more piecemeal, a lot more patient, you might say, with the small analytical tasks. In his essay on Austin, who was his teacher, John Searle says Austin had little use for Wittgenstein's philosophy as a whole. The influence of Wittgenstein is there, you might say, in the turn to ordinary language, but Searle says many people will think of Austin as a, um, a kind of disciple of Wittgenstein, but he says he didn't really like Wittgenstein's approach because he thought it was hopelessly lacking in clarity and precision. It wasn't careful enough. Austin found the arguments against private language, for example, wholly unconvincing in Wittgenstein. And Searle thinks that if Austin had a mentor, a role model, it was G.E. Moore. G.E. Moore, original philosopher of common sense here, was the person Austin especially had in mind, that we should pay attention to common sense, and common sense is reflected in ordinary language. Now, there are some advantages, I think, to this kind of ordinary language analysis. There are some positives here. One is that we do focus on here on the worldview, you might say, of common sense. And there are advantages, I think, to going back for philosophers to go back to common sense, to what things we would all say we already know, and start from there. Those kind of starting points aren't necessarily incorrigible. They don't have the kind of certainty that Russell had hoped for, that Descartes had once hoped for, but they're not a bad place to start. Austin sees our language, ordinary language, to be revelatory of reality, of the phenomena, and a reality that's not constructed by language. In other words, as he says, we're not the final arbiter of the phenomena themselves. They are what they are, independent of the way we speak about them. He thinks that by focusing on the language we use, and for a time anyway, you might say, setting aside or postponing questions, deeper metaphysical questions, we might be able to prescind from the current debates over the larger issues. Is theism or naturalism true? Is materialism about the mind going to succeed and so forth? And maybe we can make some progress in the meanwhile on more limited issues without taking on the foundations of an entire worldview. Many philosophers who had interests in metaphysics or in moral theory, normative ethics, or religious belief found this approach very liberating and very attractive. You focus on the way that words are used in various arguments and various contexts and so on without having to defend, at least not yet, more substantive claims about the way things really are, claims that are going to be a lot more controversial. So this allowed some moral philosophers and others to fly under the radar of the reigning scientism and materialism. You might call their movement contemporary stealth philosophy. They were able to present their work as simply an analysis of the way we speak about different things, using the dictionary in part as a tool, using our imagination, as Austin says, that is trying to imagine, well, what would we say in this context? What would we say in that case? Some people complained about this method, that it was philosophy by counterexample. That is, somebody would say, well, we don't normally hold people morally responsible in cases where they're compelled. And somebody else would just give an example of where we would do that. The per here's a person who was compelled, and yet we would hold them responsible and so forth. Or wouldn't we say in this kind of a case, yeah, they deserved it. They deserved to be punished or whatever. Wouldn't we still punish them anyway? And so on. So there was that kind of constructive project, you might say, of the imagination 
Some people thought this was useful for getting clear about our concepts. Other people thought it was um, a distraction. It was silliness that why is philosophy concerned about these bizarre kinds of issues? In fact, ethics often maybe really went to town in this area in um, trying to imagine in getting clear about especially what kind of actions would be okay and which ones wouldn't be, to imagine all kinds of weird scenarios where, say, there's a bunch of people trapped in a cave and, and they're trying to get out, but a particularly ample person is trying to get through the opening and blocks it up. And, so, and then they can't move forward or back. Nobody can get them through the opening. Water's rising in the cave and everybody's going to die unless they uh, get this person out of the way. And the only way to do so is with a stick of dynamite. And if they blast with the dynamite, they'll all get out, but this person will no doubt be killed by the blast, the person stuck in the hole. So is it okay in that case for them to go ahead and dynamite the opening? A train's coming toward us and somebody's tied to the front of the train. There were all these bizarre kinds of imaginative scenarios. Some people thought that that th these were just hopeless. That they, how could this be useful for philosophy? Because this is a situation that's never going to occur, let's face it. But the argument in its favor was that by, in a way, presenting from the other factors, trying to get a kind of pure, it's the closest thing you could do, I suppose, to being in the laboratory and trying to have a controlled experiment that is presenting from all these other factors that often in real life are going to interfere with our judgments trying to just get a kind of pure scenario where these are the only things we know about it and so forth and then say now if we were in that situation what would we think it was okay to do and what would we say no we can't do that and why would we say it and so forth so the idea was that by carefully attending to real and imagined cases and what we'd say about them and so forth we get more and more clear about certain moral concepts and that will function then as our data in developing the broader moral theories that we develop We'll say, well, this theory captures the data better than these and so forth. Now, if this were linked maybe to a little bit bolder realism about ordinary claims, the method, I think, would have very few differences with the method used by Aristotle or by St. Thomas Aquinas. After all, in the opening chapter of his main treatise on ethics, the Nicomachean Ethics, Aristotle proposes to survey what various people have already said about what the good is for human beings. He says, well, some people think pleasure is the good. Some people think it's virtue. And then having listed all those, he says, well, let's, let's see what are the qualifications that the highest good is supposed to have. It's supposed to be something that's an end in itself. It's supposed to be complete and so on. And those criteria, he says, are themselves just drawn from what ordinary people would say. It can't be the highest good unless it's complete, unless it's something we can actually achieve and so forth. So in every uh, case, you might say, he's looking back to common sense into ordinary language and so forth. But there is, I think, a weakness in ordinary language analysis as practiced by someone like Austin. Obviously, in the end, you, you haven't eliminated the deeper philosophical questions. Uh, maybe you've postponed them, maybe you've made some progress towards them, but you haven't yet solved them. His most uh, famous student, in fact, John Searle, commenting on, on Austin's discussions about moral responsibility, says, Thus, to take the problem of free will, Austin points out that when we say that an act was done freely, freely functions as an excluder, excluding all the various ways in which an act may not have been done freely, such as, for example, done under duress or compulsion. But even if Austin is right about this, and he probably is, you still have a free will problem left over. Here it is. 
are all human acts such that the performance of the act has antecedent causal conditions which are causally sufficient to determine the act. That is, that problem of free will and determinism is going to remain even if it turns out that, well, here's what we're doing when we excuse people. We're trying to say they weren't coerced and so forth. Well, fine. Now, are people ever free in that sense? Obviously, ordinary language, we assume that they are, but are they? In other words, this sort of deeper question, is that just some kind of illusion on our part? Are we misled? Has science somehow shown us that nobody is free in that respect? Philosophers are ultimately going to have to take on that question. And even Austin, of course, says we're not going to take it on yet. Let's wait a bit. Not everybody was as patient as he was. He was a very meticulous, careful thinker. People who knew him in person say that with everybody he required a, a very high level of precision. He was never loose about what he would say. But if philosophers are going to address the deeper questions here, it will be useful to have clearly in mind what view about actions and responsibility we do already presuppose in our ordinary language about them. I think it's a bit of a toss-up here as to which view of Austin one wants to take. One could see this project as so limited in its results, you might say, as to not be worth doing. I myself see this project as uh, promising in various ways. But one can just, of course, say I'm going to start with common sense beliefs, the way that Aristotle does or the way that Thomas Reed does. Obviously, that's going to be open to a lot of challenge and criticism by those who think common sense is hopelessly deceived on many points, or that science, the scientific picture of things, has utterly devastated, decimated the common sense view of reality and so forth. Even if you don't think that, you might want to just start with common sense beliefs. Well, how do we know what the common sense view is? Here, I think Austin has a promising suggestion that we look at how we well, if you like how we think about these things, but that's reflected in the ways that we talk about them. If it turns out that almost everybody, when they're not in their mode of being professional philosophers, almost everybody thinks people are acting freely sometimes, and sometimes they're not, we should perhaps take that very seriously as something common sense at least is committed to. And it could serve, I think, these common sense claims can sometimes serve as a kind of default factor. That is, maybe they should be assumed to be okay or true or reflective of reality unless we have a really good reason to give them up. Uh, let's have a really strong, very convincing and powerful argument of some kind that common sense on this point is just totally and utterly confused and mistaken. In the case of the free will determinism issue, in a way I think that's kind of illuminating. Many of the people who think the common sense view is utterly mistaken have no particular argument for that. It's an assumption. It's just assumed that, of course, naturalism is true. Everything that exists is a, some version or other of a physical thing, human beings included. So the human organism functions in a pretty mechanistic way, and that eventually, there's a kind of promissory note many times, eventually the sciences will be able to fully predict everything that we say, do, and think. We're not at that point yet, of course, but the assumption is, of course, that's just a matter of time. Well. Why should we think so, given that common sense is very much committed to the view that not all of our actions are determined, that human beings aren't in fact wholly subject to the physical laws. Not all our behavior is coerced, causally determined in that sense. People really do have genuine options presented to them. It seems to me that unless we've already presupposed the truth of naturalism or materialism, then determinist view of human action will not be particularly attractive. If we have presupposed it, then of course we are already committed 
to a philosophical position on this, and we have to contend with the fact that common sense is strongly on the other side here. Uh, in other words, it seems to me that responsible philosophy would both give an argument in favor of determinism, would try to explain why, uh, offer a convincing explanation of why common sense is committed to freedom of the will. Why is that reflected even in law and in our moral judgments and so forth to such an extent it's, it's, I would think, inextricably bound up in our culture to hold people responsible for some of their behavior. Uh, if they are wholly determined, why is that? Why can't we, you might say, pull that out or solve it or eliminate it from our cultural practices, right? It seems very backwards. Um, so you'd want a lot more, in a way, a lot more attention paid, I think, to these kinds of common sense claims, which often hasn't been done. So in that sense, I believe Austin has something important to contribute here to philosophy. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.